All right. You know, it's amazing the kind of things that you see and experience in church. And so sometimes they're, uh, you know, what you'd expect and sometimes what you wouldn't expect. I mean, just for example, we were just standing there singing that song uh, before we were seated. And I usually have some little candies or something in my pocket and I feel a hand go in my coat pocket. And uh, my wife picked my pocket <laughs> right in front of one of Baytown's finest. <laughs> And she didn't get arrested. I don't know what the world's coming to, but people get to where they think they can just do anything these days. Uh, and so, uh, praise the Lord. All right, 2 Kings this morning, chapter number 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. We're going to start here in chapter 8. We're going to bounce back to chapter 4, and then we're going to come back to chapter 8 again as well. And so, 2 Kings chapter 8, we're going to read here the first six verses together. Uh, and so, if you're familiar with this story uh, then you'll pick up with where we're going pretty quickly. If not, then you'll uh, put more together as we go back to chapter number four. We do not have time this morning uh, to read the lengthy section of scripture that this covers in chapter four. We will read some portions of it, some of the verses there. Uh, but we'll, we'll, you may want to jot some of this down so that you can go back and review it during uh, some devotional time later this week, but I hope it'll be a blessing to us this morning. Second Kings chapter number eight and beginning in verse one, then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life saying, arise and go thou in thine household and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn for the Lord hath called for a famine and it shall also come upon the land seven years. And the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the seven years end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines. And she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee all the great things that Elisha hath done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, so the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. And I want to speak this morning on this topic, when God is in control. And let's pray. Father, thank you today again for your word and for its power. And Lord, but it's only powerful when we open our hearts to it and allow you to work in our, in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be challenged this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would make our hearts and our minds available to you. Lord, I know that you indwell us if we know that if we've trusted Christ, but so often we silence you and we don't give you liberty to work in our lives. Lord, may we, may we do so this morning intentionally. Uh, may we give heed to your word. Lord, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I realized this morning uh, by the title that God is always in control um, of everything. However, God gave you and I a free will. 
And so when it comes to our lives, God allows us to make decisions and to choose who will serve and who will live. My message this morning is not about God being in charge of the cosmos and God being in charge of eternity and things eternal. And my message this morning is, will I allow God to have control of my life? I have that choice. Uh, I can either choose to sit upon the throne of my heart in God's stead and, and follow my path and the world's path, or I can yield myself to the Spirit of God and I can allow uh, God to be in control of my life. Proverbs chapter 3 and verses 5 and 6 tell us to trust in the Lord with all thine heart and to lean not into thine own understanding in all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Will we allow God to direct our paths? And so when we have that in mind this morning and we need to go back and establish what's taking place here in chapter 4 of 2 Kings. In chapter 4 of 2 Kings, uh, there is a, a woman, a widow woman that Elisha goes to uh, and he takes care of her. He uh, tells her to borrow some vessels. She needs oil. She needs meal. She does. God provides for her throughout uh, this time. And then in verse 8, we see that Elisha is traveling. He is moving across an area in which he ministers. Uh, he, this isn't unusual. He is more itinerant in ministry. He's moving from place to place. Uh, and in some cases, many, many times over the same ground. And in verse 8, it says, And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread, and so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick. And it shall be when he cometh to us that, she, that he shall turn in thither. And so what's taking place here this morning is that this Elisha comes and there's a woman here with her husband, with her, their, their servants and their lands that they're farming and she's watching and paying attention and Elisha travels by on a regular basis. Now Elisha uh, would have been the kind of a man who would have spent a lot of nights outdoors. He wasn't someone that had to have a roof over his head in order to feel that God had provided for him. Uh, sometime I would imagine that he spent many nights in a cave or under a tree uh, along a creekside, wherever provision was. Uh, but he, in this case, uh, is just going about his business. He's not stopping here at the Shunammite woman's house and asking her for something. He has not proposed to her uh, by any account from the scripture that, hey, I need a place to stay. He's not asked to rent a room. She's been observant of him and of his needs. She watches and knows his reputation and his testimony of serving God, of proclaiming God's truth, of the miracles that God is performing through him. And, uh, and you know, a lot of times they attributed the miracles to the individual as the king does in chapter 8. But the reality is, is that it's God that does that work through these men, not the men doing the work themselves. And so... Elisha is just going about his business and she notices that there's a need. And so when she notices the need, uh, she decides that she wants to do something about it. And so the first thing by way of introduction that I'd say, there are four primary things that we see in this woman's life 
that, that take place that demonstrate what happens in someone's life when they allow God to be in control of their life. Now, I'm a bit of a control freak. I like to know that things are under control. I like to know that there's a plan. I like for things to be done decently and in order. I'm okay with needing to respond to things at times spontaneously. Life comes about, life happens, there are things that are, that are unforeseen. I'm okay with all of that. But to just go through my day-to-day -day life without a plan, without a schedule, with no order, with no idea of what's going on, my wife will tell you one of the, almost on a, on a nightly basis, or if not at night before we go to bed in the morning when we have coffee together, my question is, what is your plan for the day? Or what is your plan for tomorrow? Or what is your plan for, uh, you know, uh, we typically take Thursdays off. What is your plan for about Tuesday? For Thursday, what's on your agenda? Why? Because I don't want to formulate an agenda in my mind and then have to disrupt it. I'd rather just factor all of that in to, from the get-go. Why? Because I like things to be in order. I like things to be under control. I like to feel like I have some say in my life about what's going on and how it's going to go. Now, most people I think are that way. Some of us are a little bit more extreme or OCD in that area than others are. Uh, but most people take comfort and take uh, take a, get peace of heart from knowing, hey, this is what I've got to do in the week ahead or in the day ahead or in the hours ahead. Uh, and so, but the reality is, is that there are a lot of times that life just hits us with things that are out of control. I, I really struggle to be with people that just like their lives to be out of control. I, I, it's hard for me to understand that concept and that mindset. I, uh, you know, even my life and areas of my life that are messy, there's generally some order to the mess. If you look at my desk in the office right now, I've got three piles. Uh, I, they're driving me insane, uh, but they're not completely out of control piles. I know pretty much what's in each pile, and I know pretty much where things that I need are in those piles until I, I'll whittle them down later this week and uh, get it back into better order. But uh, just that structure, I, I, I don't like uh, the, the overwhelming schedule destroying events that come up in life sometimes, but they happen. This woman is a woman who uh, is allowing God to be in control. See, we like control, but what we need is for God to be in control. What we need is for God to order our steps. So what are some thoughts this morning here is, is by, by looking at this stage of her life that she's doing that demonstrate that God is the one who is ordering her steps or that is in control. And the first thing that I would say this morning, and this is just introduction, we've not, it's going to be a few minutes before we get to uh, your, your main points on your outlines this morning, but her kindness to the man of God leads to God's blessing upon her life. She decides that here is Elisha who is coming about He's not demanding. He's not even asking. She just sees he's got a need. There's something in his life that I could do that would be a blessing to him. And so she goes to her husband and she says, listen, Elisha is passing by here on a regular basis. And let's, let's give him a room. We've got a room over here. Let's set it aside. Let's give him a table. Let's give him some light. Let's give him a bed. 
so that whenever he comes, he, he will give them a key. Uh, if they had keys back in those times, he said, but, but he don't have to make a reservation. He doesn't have to call ahead. He doesn't have to put it on the schedule. If he's passing by, this is his. And she does. And so they establish quarters for Elisha. Uh, it's not for anybody else. He doesn't have to worry about if it's turned into an Airbnb while he's been gone. Uh, he, can just, he can just stop there on his way uh, as he's going. And so she takes advantage of an opportunity to demonstrate kindness and to be a blessing to someone who has a need. And because of that, it leads to God blessing her. What we see in 2 Kings chapter 4 in verses 8 through 17 is her conversation with the husband, her giving of Elisha this room, and Elisha with Gehazi, his servant, as they're staying there saying, in Elisha's conversation with Gehazi, Gehazi, what's been done for her? What can we do for her? What is it that she needs? Does she want an audience with the king? Does she, would she like for me to speak to the king on her behalf? Would she like for me to get her this or that? Would she like to be in command of, a, uh, of an army, I believe it even says, about con, uh, being the captain of a host? Uh, and so Gehazi says, Elisha, she doesn't have a child. Now you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Hannah uh, in the early part of 1 Samuel where, uh, where the culturally the significance and even in Genesis with Rachel where she cried out to Jacob and said give me children or else I die that there, there being a woman at this time culturally not having a child was perceived by the public at large as to, that she was out of God's favor and that she did not have God's blessing. And so she's not like Hannah that she's broken and pouring her heart out or like Rachel. She seems to just have accepted this as her fate in life. She, she's not made a request. She didn't go to Elisha and said, Elisha, you just did a miracle for this widow woman. Uh, and I believe that God can do great things through you. I'm going to give you a room if you'll give me a child. There's no there's no anticipation of receiving anything in return from her when she demonstrates this kindness, but her kindness leads to God blessing her. So Elisha says to her, you're going to have a child. And the next time that I come through, or when I come through again, according to the time of life, so you are going to conceive a child and you are going to have a son. And so not only was she going to be blessed with a child, but it was especially powerful and they especially associated God's favor when they had a son. And so uh, when, when Elisha tells her uh, that this is going to come about in verse 16, about this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, Nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid. She said, this is not possible. I've been, we've been married for a long time. It, my husband is old. And he tells us clearly here, her husband is, is beyond the age of childbearing, you're conceiving. And so she's looking here and she's saying, it, this, is, this is not possible. This is not something that can happen. Don't lie to me. I wanted to be kind to you. Don't repay my kindness by lying to me. But Elisha wasn't. And God blessed. And she did conceive. And the child was born. And the child grew. And all for a while was well. She was 
blessed. But when blessing comes and when God's moving in our lives comes, it's almost always as our faith tested. And so we find that this woman in uh, verse 18, the child was grown and it fell on a day that he went out to his with his father to the reapers and he said unto his father, my head, my head. And he said to, the, to a lad, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. And she called unto her husband in verse 22 and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It is neither noon, new moon, nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. It's an amazing statement. Then if you look in verse number 26, she's coming up to Elisha. Elisha says and cries out to her uh, that, or, and sends Gehazi when he sees her afar off, uh, is everything okay? Run now, in verse 26, I pray thee to meet her and say unto her, it is, is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she says, it is well. Now clearly, it's not well. Her son is dead. What she's demonstrating here is a great faith. She's not, what she's saying here in fact is, it will be. Is everything okay? No, but it will be. I just need to get there and tell you what's going on. I, I just need to come here and say this. And so what we see is that her faith is tested. And by the way, my friends, this morning, if you put your faith in God and you try to live for him, I can assure you that God will bless you for that. But I can just as well assure you that sooner or later and probably sooner that your faith will be tested. God tests our faith. Why? Because if our faith is not tested, we don't grow. And what we see in the testing of her faith is that her tested faith led to life. Her tested faith causes Elisha to return and for God to work and for her son to be resurrected. And we see in verses 18 through 37 that taking place. And so Gehazi is sent back. He's unsuccessful. Elisha arrives on the scene and Elisha goes in and he lays himself down on the child and he breathes on him and God moves and works and his flesh warms up and he comes back, life returns to him. Uh, and then in verse 35 we see, then he returned and walked into the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him and the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her and when she was come in unto him, she said, he said, take up thy, thy son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. Her faith is rewarded. Amen. Is everything okay? No, but it will be. Her faith tested led to life. Faith and our lives gave us eternal life in Christ. God's grace was provided to us, but it is an exercise of our faith in God that allows us to accept that gift 
of God's grace in our life and to be saved. When I'm spiritually depleted, when I'm on the verge of spiritual death and annihilation, when I feel that I am emotionally and spiritually exhausted and drought has set in or trials have set in and the burdens are heavy, life comes as a result of that testing of faith. We don't like our faith to be tested because it's uncomfortable. But the reality is, is that an untested faith is no faith at all. An untested faith is a, is a faith of theory. A tested faith is, the, faith is a proven faith. It proves God to us and it proves uh, God's grace to the world around us. And so we see here that her kindness to the man of God led to her blessing and her tested faith leads to life, the resurrection of her son. Then we see that she's led a faithful life. By all accounts, she has been faithful and true to God as she's lived her, uh, as she's lived her life. And because of that, because of her faithfulness in life, she has found guidance when she needed it from God. In chapter 8 and verses 1 and 2, we read that then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go thou and thine household and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn, for the Lord hath called for a famine and it shall come upon the land seven years. She could have been caught there unaware that a famine was coming. She could have been in jeopardy. She could have certainly would have been uncomfortable. Uh, I think in all likelihood, she would most likely have survived the famine, but uh, at what cost and with what distress. And God in his love for her and in his, in his blessing to her faithful life gives her guidance. A famine's coming. A drought. Things are going to get scarce. People are going to get desperate. Why don't you take your family and go someplace where you won't be uncomfortable? Go someplace where you won't be in jeopardy. Go someplace where uh, you'll be cared for. And so she packs up and she goes for these seven years to the land of the Philistines. And we see that her faithful life gave her, led to God's guiding hand in her life. Her willingness to accept, to hear, to be uh, submissive to what was advised for her to do. And she goes. And then we see that ultimately her suffering and heartache leads to her restoration. And we're going to come back to that at the very end this morning and tie this together. But what you see in 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse number 6 is restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. That's more than she asked for. That's more, was greater than her expectation. It was God's goodness to her. And as a result, we'll see of her suffering and heartache, it led to her restoration. Listen, what, what she experienced here was some things in her life that didn't make sense. You ever been there? Do you ever experience things in your life that don't make sense? Do you ever look at things in your life and say, how could this happen? Why does this happen? Why would God allow this in my life? How uh, did I make the mistake that led to this? And we take responsibility for things that we can see uh, are us reaping what we've sown. Uh, but I would say this this morning, that when it doesn't make sense to us, it always makes sense to God. 
And when God is working, when God is, is moving, what we found is that the famine came. And when the famine came, her sojourning came. And when after the sojourning was over, her loss of property came. Or during the course of. That's a lot of things that don't make sense. I have a miraculous child. He died. That didn't make sense. He was resurrected. That makes even less sense. But I'm grateful for it. There's a famine. Why a famine, God? He doesn't give an explanation as to why. It just says the Lord called for a famine. Then she had to go somewhere else. She had to leave her home. She had to leave her comfort zone uh, to, uh, to stay in the blessing of God. Uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Then whenever they left their homes in such a way, you see multiple times throughout the Old Testament, whenever they would leave during a famine, squatters came in and took over their property. Somebody's living in my house. I'm over here in the land of the Philistines. I'm comfortable, but hey, what about, what are they doing to my home? Doesn't make sense, but it makes sense to God. And when you can't find the good, isn't it true of us that we, we will focus on the negative at every turn? I mean, I could stand up here this morning and I could, I could give you 10 encouraging, enlightening, uplifting thoughts. But if I, if I invert two words in a quoted in verse and, and get it or mispronounce a word or, uh, or a name, uh, then, then the only thing that the people that pick up on it are going to think about is not the things that I said that were encouraging or a blessing. They're just going to focus on, I can't wait till I get him out in the lobby after the service so that I can correct his mistake. And so... When we, when we have that mindset, that is our natural mindset. We don't look for the good. We don't appreciate the good. You know, I don't remember the last time I got in my truck and started driving down the highway and thought, man, what a wonderful vehicle. It's doing what it's supposed to do. I mean, I put the key in the ignition and it turned on. I put it in gear and it went. Uh, I, you know, it's got fuel. Uh, it gets me where I'm going. Uh, I don't ever stop and say, this is awesome. You did a phenomenal job because it functioned the way it was supposed to. But if the tire's flat, if the starter's out, if the gas pump goes out, if the battery's dead, I've got a problem. I don't think about all of the good things that it's done for 247,000 miles now. I think about why is this happening now? Well, duh, it's got 240-something thousand miles on it. We look and we stop and we think the problems, we focus on the negatives. We don't stop and say, oh, I've got a problem. I got a bad doctor's report. I've got a serious disease. I had a stroke. I had a heart attack. I had an accident. Uh, you know, someone in my life's attacking me. The, this is going on and that's going on. And I don't stop in those moments and say, praise be to God for all his glory and blessing. I take my complaint to God and say, God, why is this happening to me now? And we mostly are the same way. We, we look at things and we focus on that which is broken, not that which is right. But we can trust him for provision. She provided for Elisha and God's provided for her. We can trust him for blessing. She was a blessing to Elisha and now God has been a blessing to her. We can trust him in death. We can trust him in famine. We can trust him in all things because he is God and if we allow him to be in control, then even when we don't understand, we can trust him with the outcome. Amen. 
We, we, it's an old cliche-ish saying at this point, but never doubt in the dark what you believed in the light. It's easy to believe truth. It's easy to believe that God is uh, wonderful and powerful and all those things when everything in my life is the way that I think it should be. But what about whenever tragedy strikes? That's when God really shows himself powerful if I let him. I don't want to doubt when things are hard what I believe and know to be true when things are good. So when we look here this morning, and here's the message, when I allow God to be in control, when God is in control, when I say, God, here's my life, you're in charge, here's the throne of my heart, it belongs to you, Holy Spirit, you sit upon it, you guide my thoughts, you direct my paths, you order my steps, and I will submit and surrender to you and do what you, uh, what you put in my heart and life to do. And that's what this woman has done, this Shunammite woman has done, and we see that demonstrated. And we see, number one this morning, that when we put God in control, that there will be opportunity. God gives opportunities. Now, I would go so far to say in here, again, in chapter 4 of 2 Kings, uh, that, uh, that God has put in her heart to do this. But you could argue that she's trying to manufacture even an opportunity. I can, this is something I can do. When's the last time that we looked and we thought, hey, here's a way that I can be a blessing? Here's something that I can do to be helpful. Here's something that I can do uh, to make a difference. And what does she do? And so we've read the verses already, verses 8 through 11 in particular. She had an opportunity to be an encourager. Most people today have the gift of discouragement, not the gift of encouragement. For every one, one phone call that I get uh, that says, hey, pastor, praying for you today, love you, thanks for the message, or thanks for being a blessing, or thanks for uh, taking time to talk to me about this, I get probably 25 or 30 calls that say, I can't believe you said that, or can you believe that this person said this about this person, or how could this be, how could you not respond to that, how could you not take care of, that's just the nature of what we, of, that's just human nature. I don't want to be the kind of Christian that is only known for being a discouragement. I don't want uh, to be the kind of Christian that whenever uh, the greeters are standing out in the lobby, see my car pull into the parking lot, uh, want to go hide around the corner until I pass through the lobby so they don't have to deal with me. I don't want to be uh, that type of person who just, when someone mentions my name, uh, their, their first thought is, man, what's wrong with that guy? See, pastor, are there church members that, 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 that are in our church that are that way? Oh, yeah. I'm trying to be unkind this morning, but I'm just telling you, there, there are some people that I can, I can watch, I can stand, and sometimes I do. When their car pulls up, there are about four or five people that scatter as you approach the door. And when you get through, then they come back. Why? Because they don't want to be discouraged. They, they don't want, I mean, there are some times, when, when the phone goes off, it decline. Whenever, the, why? Because you just already know that it's bad news. In my case, they say, but Pastor, if I call you, do you hit decline? Depends on what I'm doing, and it depends on who you are. Uh, and so, uh, if it's an emergency, I figure you'll leave a message, and I'll get back to you. Most of the time, I try to take the call if I can, but in, in seriousness. But the reality is, is that I don't want to be the kind of person that's just going around throwing a wet blanket on everything that God's trying to do. Be an encourager. This Shunammite woman is looking and she's saying, hey, Elisha's going out here and some days he's sleeping under this and some days he's sleeping in a cave and some days he's got a more comfortable spot. 
I don't know what anybody else is doing and I don't know what his agenda is. So I'm just going to set aside a room so he knows that he's got a place where he can come in, where he can wash his feet, where he can be comfortable, where he can have a meal, where he's got some light so that he can uh, correspond and write and read and do the things that he needs to do. I want to take advantage of the opportunity to be an encouragement to Elisha. When's the last time that you did something to just simply be an encouragement to someone with no thought or no hope of anything in return? An encourager. She had an opportunity to be an encourager. She also had an opportunity to be a provider. She provided him a place to stay. She provided him a place to eat. She provided him food to eat. She provided him light to read by. She was a provider. She didn't provide for his entire life. It's not like she took him in and said, hey, I'm going to pay for your life. But whenever there was a need, she wanted to provide the need. When's the last time that we intentionally sought an opportunity to be a blessing to someone, either by encouraging them or by providing something that they need, had need of? Third thing that I think that we see in her life is that she took advantage of an opportunity to establish a lifestyle of being a blessing. Now this goes to like a whole nother level. Because now it's not just, I'm going to be a random blessing. Listen, it's easy on Sunday to say an encouraging word to be a blessing to somebody. We don't as often as we should, but it's easy because we're all here together. It's easy for us to go up and see somebody that looks like they're down or somebody that you know's had a hard week. Maybe someone that you know's got some bad news or someone that's lost their job, someone that's been discouraged. It's easy when you're together to go to that person and say, hey, you know, I love you. I'm praying for you. If there's something I can do to be a blessing and help to you, uh, that, or, or you know they've got a need and you just bring it and meet the need, that, that's a blessing. That's great. It's a little bit more difficult to remember them on Tuesday. She had an opportunity to be a blessing on Sunday, but she also had an opportunity to be a blessing on Monday and an opportunity to be a blessing on Tuesday, and an opportunity to be a blessing on Wednesday. There's always opportunity to be a blessing. And what I think that we see demonstrated in this woman's life is that this was not just a random act, but this was a lifestyle of being a blessing to, at the very least, Elisha. Listen, we should be seeking to, to, to take advantage of the opportunity to establish a lifestyle as the children of God in this present day of being a blessing to those that need a blessing. You may be, I may be, the only way that God has to communicate with them. She established not a one-time place for Elisha, she established a permanent place for Elisha. A perpetual blessing. Second thing that we see in her life is this, is that when God is in control, opportunities will arise. But once opportunities arise, those, the engagement of those opportunities is going to lead to offspring. It's going to lead to spiritual fruit. It's going to lead to God's blessing and manifestation. In chapter 4 and verses 12 through 17, Elisha tells her, you're going to have a son. The son is going to come and be a blessing to you. What, what, just a, two thoughts about offspring this morning. First, offspring is a result of relationship. We have children in our marriages because of our relationship. We have we have offspring or spiritual fruit in our spiritual life because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
we make an impact or a difference in someone's life for the cause of Christ because we develop a relationship with them. Listen, I'm saying this morning that the, the producing of spiritual fruit, the production of offspring in our lives spiritually is always a result of relationships. We should be seeking to establish relationships with people that need the gospel for the purpose of sharing with them the gospel. We should be working to establish relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ so that we have someone that can pray for us as we pray for them. So that we can be a blessing to someone. So that someone has the opportunity uh, and when the time arises and when we have the need to be a blessing to us. That's part of the reason that God has established the church. is so that we as a family of God can lean upon one another and encourage one another and pray for one another. Uh, and be uplifting to one another and exhorting one another. It's a result of relationship. And it is the, it is the result of God giving uh, the desires of our heart. When we allow God to be in control, when we put God first, then the, the fruit that he gives us is often the desire of our heart. What God gave her, what Elisha proclaimed to her, was something that she had longed for for so long and had become so discouraged about that she had just given up any hope of ever having a child. But when God's in control, miracles happen. God looked at her and said, I'm not going to give you the things that are on your, the top of your list today. I'm going to give you that thing that's buried so deep within your heart that you don't even think about it anymore. I'm just going to bless you. I'm just going to reward your faithfulness. I'm going to give you offspring. Thirdly, this morning we see that once God, once we've taken the opportunity and God begins to work and God begins to produce in our lives, that once that's taking place, thirdly, we see that there will be opposition. There will be opposition or oppression. In chapter 4 and verses 18 through 28, we read part of that already. The child grows. He's fine. Gets up. Has breakfast. Goes out into the field with his father. Oh, my head, my head. Now, we don't know what his problem was. But the most logical thing in my mind is either that he had a massive stroke and died or that he had a ruptured aneurysm and died. <clears throat> we don't know. We can only speculate. But at any rate... He got a severe head problem and he died. Tragedy. There's opposition. I mean, you stop and you think about it. She's, she's given this room. She's experienced the relationship now of bringing up her son. She's loving God. She's loving her husband. She's loving uh, the people that they work with. She's just perpetually living the life that God has given her to live. And all of a sudden, her son dies. Now, I want you to notice when this tragedy strikes, her response. And we talked about this, we touched on this briefly a moment ago. But in verse 23, why are you going to go to him today? Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It's not the new moon, it's not the Sabbath. This isn't the time to go to him. Why are you going to bother him? He's dead. Just wait till the Sabbath. You can tell him then. There's nothing he can do about it now. 
So what are you going to bother him for? It's not time. And she said, it shall be well. Oh, he can do something about it. I know that logically he can't do anything about it. I know that you, husband, don't believe that he can do anything about it. But I know what God promised, and I know what God gave, and I know what I said to him about not deceiving me, about not lying to me, about not giving me somebody and then taking him away from me. I know what our conversation was. I know what our understanding was. This happened. It's going to be okay. In verse 26, Elisha sees her coming. Sends Gehazi out to go meet her and find out, is everything okay with you? Is everything okay with your husband? Is everything okay with your son? All is well. Her son lays dead, but her faith stands large. Her response is a faith response. It shall be well. When's the last time that tragedy struck our lives and our response was, it shall be well. Now the reality is, is that it has to be well whether we get the outcome that we want or not. Because we're trusting him. But her faith gave her peace. The second thing that we see about her faith is that there was faith, then secondly there was action. Verse 27, she's on the move. And when she came to the man of God, to the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to thrust her away. And the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is vexed within her. And the Lord hath hid it from me and not told me. So Elisha doesn't know what's going on. He just knows that she's in anguish of soul. He's not seen this from her before. She's saying the right things, but she's putting this into action. She goes to Elisha. And what I'm saying this morning is that faith without works is dead. I can say that I trust God, but if when the, trial, when, the, when the test comes, if it doesn't spur me to an action that honors God, then my faith is no faith at all. My faith is a faith in theory, but not a faith in action. I touched on this a little bit yesterday on the wall class, but we, are, we trust in Jesus Christ. He saves us by his grace and we trust and put our faith in that and that saves our soul. And then there are those that would look at James and say, man, pastor, the Bible contradicts itself because James says that faith without works is dead. Well, Romans tells us that we're saved in many other places in the scripture, we're saved by grace through faith. That's what God sees. James is dealing with what man sees. James is dealing with what the world looks at. And, and our, God knows our faith. God sees our hearts, but man has to see the fruit. Action. Faith without works is dead. She, her faith was not a faith that, that withered away and shriveled up to nothing when her son died. Her faith was a faith that put shoes on and went to work. It addressed the issue. It went to one that had the answers. It went to one that had the power with God. It went to one that could do what needed to be done. Her faith had action and that action and her faith led her to prayer. She comes to Elisha. She pours out her heart to him. She is praying to God through him. 
Now, obviously, that's not the way we come boldly before the throne of grace. This was not her normal way of praying to God and going through. But the act of what she's doing here is pouring out her heart to one who represents the solution to her problem. She's prayer, prayerfully pouring out her heart in verses 27 and 28. She says, did in verse 28, did I desire a son of my Lord? I didn't ask for this, but I don't want to lose it. Now that I've experienced them, what are you going to do about it? And Elisha comes, and her son is given life. There's opposition. And listen, I'm just telling you this morning, take advantage, let God be in control. If we let God be in control, then we will seize upon the opportunities that God puts in our path. And when we seize upon those opportunities, it's going to produce a result. And when the results are being produced, opposition and oppression are going to come forth and test our faith. And when our faith is tested, we experience God intervening in our life and we overcome. And what we see fourthly this morning is that there will be overcoming. There will be an overcoming of the opposition. There will be victory. In verses 29 through 37, we see Elisha in action and her son resurrected and her coming in verse 36 take up thy son what happens here well we know the process Elisha comes in he lays on the child and God breathes life back into the child and it's a, a miraculous thing and he calls the woman in and he delivers her living son back into her arms but what does that do for her number one it overcomes her discouragement God, when we exercise our faith, it's not that we'll never get discouraged, but when God's in control, he can lift us above that discouragement. He can lift us out of that discouragement. I cannot imagine anything more devastating than what this woman's just experienced. There's nothing in this life that I can imagine that would be more crushing than the loss of her child. But yet God lift her above it. She overcomes discouragement. How did she do that? Well, she, she overcame death. Overcoming death is pretty encouraging. And listen, there, you may be here this morning and you may have Jesus Christ in your heart knowing that you're saved and on your way to heaven. And I'm in no way diminishing that. But by all other respects, is there anything about your life spiritually that's alive? Are we, in fact, this morning, a room full of people who, for the most part, are spiritually dead? We have salvation. We know we're in God's family. We've been born again. But are we living a vibrant, successful life for Christ that honors Him, that glorifies Him? How excited were you to sing sing and worship to him this morning how excited were you this morning to see your brothers and sisters in Christ how excited are we uh, I mean did you come in this morning just hoping that you can get through the message without falling asleep or did you come excited to hear from God are we spiritually living this morning I know that theologically yes we are but I'm talking about practically am I spiritually alive or am I spiritually dead? Listen, what I'm saying this morning is that when God's in control, that spiritual dearth, that spiritual famine, that spiritual death is overcome. We would call it in our present day revival. 
We would say, God got a hold of my heart and I confess my sin and I am revived and I'm on fire for God and I want to serve God and I want to live for God and I want to please God. How long, Christian, has it been since your waking breath, with your waking breath, you got up and you said, I want to honor and to please God intentionally today. I'm not talking about we get up and self-righteously say it because we know it's the right thing to say. I'm talking about it guides my steps, it directs my thoughts, it consumes my, uh, my life, it causes me to stop and pray and ask for God's presence to be evident and relevant in my life today. Can I this morning have a faith that is overcoming the spiritual dearth or death that's taken place in my heart? They overcame death. And I would say lastly that she overcame doubt. In this matter of overcoming, she overcame discouragement. They overcame the death of the child and she overcame her doubt. Maybe this is a little bit of speculation on my part. But I have to imagine as she rode that donkey out to Elisha. And she confidently said it's going to be okay. That deep in her heart she was wondering what the outcome was going to be. And sometimes we just doubt. We doubt, is God going to really answer that prayer? Is God going to honor that promise? Is God going to keep his word? Oh, we know. We'd never say out loud uh, that, that we don't think that God's going to keep his word. We know that God keeps his promises, right? But that doesn't mean that in our heart that we don't question it. She overcame the doubt. So we wrap this up this morning. We go back to chapter number eight. We see what this woman has lived. We see what she's experienced. She has gone from a humble servant that just wanted to be a blessing to someone that was incredibly blessed by God, to someone who was devastated by tragedy, to someone who exercised her faith and saw tremendous uplifting victory and her son being delivered back into her arms and only to faithfully serve God and have Elisha show up and say, you need to pack up and you need to go to the land of the enemy for seven years because the drought's coming that's going to be worse. And when you come back, yeah, I know somebody's going to be squatting on your property and somebody's going to be living in your house, uh, but just let God be in control. Just go. Now, I shouldn't say that to her, but they understood what happened when they left. This isn't the first time that there was a famine in Israel. It happened to Ruth. It happened to others. And so what we come, or Naomi, we come here and we look and we see uh, that, that she's overcome. And what I would say this morning is that we see in chapter 8 and uh, verse number 6 and verses 3 really down through verse 6 that the king is sitting there and he's just, he's just overwhelmed by what's taking place with Elisha. He doesn't know everything. He just knows the rumors and he says to Gehazi, Gehazi, you're Elisha's servant, right? And, and Gehazi has to say, yeah, well, we're kind of in a bad in a bad." They're, they're, they kind of had a fallen out over some things that Gehazi had done. And I'm not going to get into that this morning. Uh, but the reason that he's with the king is because he basically was sent there by Elisha because of some things that he did that weren't right. But yet he honors Elisha and the king says, well, tell me about what Elisha's doing. I know what Elijah did. And, and it seems like Elisha's doing what Elijah did, but more, twice more in fact. The king says, tell me about it. This is exciting. He, I mean, he gets some woman, a widow woman and a, at a time of drought, and he just had her gather a bunch of pots, and her, and, her, and her meal and her oil didn't run out. She was fed. Wow. 
So Gehazi is recounting the things that Elisha's done. And he says, and, and man, one time I remember, I'll never forget it. We had been and this woman gave us a place to stay. And we stayed there a number of times. And, and, and Elisha said uh, that we want to do something for her. And God gave her a child. She had been barren for, for years. And uh, it was an impossibility. But God gave her the child anyway. And that's miraculous in and of itself. But after a while that child died. And she came out to get us. And when we went back Elisha went in. And I don't know what he did. But he went into that chamber where that child was laid. And when he came out the child came out too. And the child was alive again. And the king's soaking it all in. And while the king's soaking it in, the door opens and in walks this woman and her son. Back from the land of the Philistines after seven years of famine. Hoping that the king will take pity on her and do something to restore her property. And at just the time that the Gehazis rehearsed the story to the king. God is working. And Gehazi tells the story, the words are still hanging in the air, and he says, by the way, king, that's the boy. And that's his mother. And the king lights up, well, come on down here. I, and I don't have to hear about it from Gehazi now. I can hear it firsthand. There's nothing like a firsthand account about what God, great things God has done. Come and tell me about the great thing that God did for you. And the woman comes down with her son, and she's, she's consumed with the fact that she came home and her fields are not in good shape and somebody's in the house and she's got problems and the king wants to hear about the great things and so the king finally gets around to saying what's your what is, what is your request why are you here what can I do for you and she says I I like what's mine rightfully restored to me and the king looks to one of the officers of his court and says, restore all that was hers. From the day that she left the land even until now. I want you to go to her property. I want you to get everyone out that's not supposed to be there. I want you to figure out what that land produced for the last seven years. And I want you to give it all to her. It's all hers. My point this morning is this, that when God is in control, God can be trusted with every detail of our lives from start to finish. There's blessing along the way. There sometimes is tragedy along the way. There sometimes is heartache along the way. Then there's restoration along the way. But what we see in this woman's life at the end was that God comes to her and says, you seized your opportunity. You've borne spiritual fruit. You've faced opposition. You've overcome it by your faith. Now, let me bless you. See, blessing, huge blessing. I realize God has blessed her throughout her life. But this blessing now exceeds it all. Blessing, God blesses us through life. God knows what we can bear. God knows how much with his help we can handle. But when we're faithful to the end, that's when real blessing comes. That's when powerful blessing comes. That's when restorative blessing comes. She comes and she just 
has been who God led her to be. She's trusted God with all that she had. And now, when she needs it most, when she's without really hope again, she realizes through her life that God put opportunity before me to be a blessing and I seized it. It was my lifestyle. And then God blessed me with this child and there was, there was relationships born and fruit was born and then death came, but God overcame that in my life and my faith was grown and my faith was strengthened. And now whenever I'm coming back from this time of famine comes more blessing than I possibly Possibly could imagine. She asked for her home to be restored. He gave her everything and back pay for the seven years before. God's blessing. Pastor, why should I let God be in control? Do you want to be blessed? Why should I let God be in control? Do you want to overcome opposition? How can I trigger God's control in my life? Expressed by faith, yield yourself to his will, but take advantage of... See, the take advantage of the opportunities is the expression that my will is yielded to his. I want to yield myself to you, God. And God says, you do? Here's an opportunity. What are you going to do with it? Seize the opportunity. Build the relationships. Bear the fruit. By faith... Overcome the oppression. Let God lift your spirits. And then enjoy God's blessing. See, God wants to bless your life. God wants to bless my life. But it's, it's, it's not an accurate look at life for me to expect that I'll never have any problems. Just because I'm having a difficulty doesn't mean God's not blessing me. Just because I'm facing a tragedy doesn't mean that God's not working in my life. Listen, it didn't make sense to her that she would have a son. It didn't make sense to her that her son died. It didn't make sense to her that her son could be resurrected. It didn't make sense to her that she needed to pack up and go to the Philistines land. It didn't make sense to her when she came back that the king was going to actually give her what she asked for. But she just chose to let God be the one calling the shots. And she trusted him even when it didn't make sense. And because of it, God blessed her. And he wants to bless you too. But will you let him be the one in charge? Now I want you to notice one last thing this morning as we close. Her heartache, her devastation was the mechanism that God used to restore her land, to give her the blessing. Her faithfulness during the death and the resurrection of her son is what drew the attention of the king. What caused the king to have a desire to restore her land was hearing the story about what she had experienced years before when she was faithful during a time of crisis in her life. Her blessing now is a result of her response then. God doesn't always look at our lives and say, you came through this, I'm going to bless you right now. But God does look at us and say, if you'll be faithful to me in this, there will come a point in time in the future when I will bless you more than you could ever imagine. And it won't be at a time when it's helpful. It'll be a time 
when it brings everything back to you that you need. See, a lot of times we want God's blessing right now and it'd be convenient. But what we don't understand is that there's something coming in the future that it's going to be a matter of our survival, God's blessing. And because of our faithfulness now, God will hold that blessing and bestow it when we most need it, when it does the most good, when it has the most impact in our life. But in order for me to experience that, I have to choose to let him be the one that's in control. Who's in control of your life this morning? Is it you?